You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2010. Today's episode is titled, Financial Management in Turbulent Times. It is self-evident that building a house or any structure on sand will not work, for when the inevitable storm comes, the foundation will fail. We all know this reality in the world of construction, but what about in building organizations? Make it a priority in your organization to teach and train everyone in a biblical worldview of life and work. These keys will enable you and your organization to be more aligned with a biblical worldview which will protect you during the turbulent times and will facilitate enduring success. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Financial Management in Turbulent Times. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Lord bless all of you for being here. I hope you got your listening ears on. I've got a lot to share with you. And most importantly, I pray the Holy Spirit has a lot to share with you. You know, all a speaker is, is a conduit. That's all he is. Now, we may be funny from time to time. We may be clever from time to time. But the reality is, the important thing is what you hear God say through this conversation. And I'm always amazed at how different it is for everyone. You never know what God's going to say. So one of my favorite questions is, what did the Holy Spirit say to you? Because that's the relevance for you. And I'm always interested in knowing what God is saying to people. So as we talk today, I know each one of you are going to hear different things. So let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Be open to what he wants to say to you. I encourage you to have a pen. And it's not so much a pen and paper to write down what you hear from me. It's what you hear from the Holy Spirit. And be willing to test what you hear by submitting it to godly counsel. You know, don't presume that you're hearing clearly. Is that fair enough? Okay. Have you noticed there's one person in this room that you can't see? Have you noticed who that is? Who is it? You can't see yourself. Is that a picture? That's how God made reality. He made reality so we can't see ourselves well. Now we can look in a mirror and kind of see it. But the best way for me to see me is for me to talk to Earl and talk to Dennis and for them to love me enough to tell me the truth. Isn't that the best way for me to see me? That's God's system. It's interdependence. It goes back to Genesis 2 where it says it was not good that man be alone. You understand that's the first time God said something was not good in his creation. Right there. Has to do with trying to be, live alone. It's not good that man lives alone. So we've got to learn to be interdependent. Now, I don't know why I said that. Somebody need to hear that, I presume. Okay, but that wasn't, that was not part of the presentation, so I'm going to start my timer now. <laughs> got a new device, Dennis. I got a timer here. All right. Well, we're going to talk about financial management today, and uh, we'll start by talking about the signs of the time. I think most of you are reading the paper, are you not? You're reading the paper, you're listening to the news. You're aware we have some interesting times. Would you call these turbulent times? Yes, these are turbulent times. Well, just some examples. We have a lot of presumption going on. Anytime you incur debt on any level, there is presumption involved. Some level of presumption. Even if it's something conservative like a mortgage, there's some level of presumption that you're going to be able to pay back that mortgage. Now, there are obviously more extreme examples of presumption, like a gentleman like this is Sam Zell. He did a number of LBOs, and recently, what his LBO of the Chicago Tribune wound up in bankruptcy. And that's what's going on today in Wall Street. There's a lot of bankruptcy going on because of the presumption of debt. Then we have greed. Have you noticed that the federal government thinks they're exempt from the rules? Have you noticed that? Is that not a little presumption there? Okay, so we got greed going on big time. We've got corruption. All of you have been following, I'm sure, uh, the Illinois governor and his attempt to benefit from appointing the next senator. And we all know what happened. He got impeached. So there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Self-serving. This is the former CEO of Merrill Lynch. And you remember Merrill Lynch was ready for bankruptcy last year. And what saved him was a merger with Bank of America. Now, you remember at the end of the year, he decided that he was worth a $10 million bonus. And he asked the board to give him that. Now, I don't think it was granted, but it was, it, to me, it was just the height of, how could you do that? I mean, you drove this company in the ground. His mindset was, well, I saved it by doing this merger with Bank of America. But it shows you the increasing gap in compensation between management and workers. 
these celebrated CEOs making millions and millions of dollars even when companies are failing. How about hedonism? We've got athletes, you know, making these huge sums of money. Now, how many here believe that education is the most important thing? You believe education is important? Do you believe it's more important than entertainment? Nobody does? A couple of you believe. Well, those of you that believe that education is more than entertainment, okay, if you look at Tiger Woods, and he, recently he made about $112 million in one year, he's just an entertainer. Okay, so let's take an educator at a Christian school who is laying the foundation for the next generation. What do you think they're worth? Are they worth a billion? Maybe two billion a year. Would that be fair? Y'all don't get this, do you? You don't understand this. We have huge hedonism going on in this country. It's all about us and our pleasure and our entertainment. Then we have idolatry. This was in the Washington State Capitol building at Christmas. It said, there are no gods, no devils, no angels. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens the heart and enslaves the mind. Now, that was in a public building, a government building in one of our states. It's an example of idolatry. It's promoting atheism and denying everything that we stand for as Christians. And, of course, we have this going on here. We have a president now who professes to be a Christian, but he absolutely does not view public policy as being in any way connected to the Bible. I have a video clip in my file of him talking about the Bible relative to public policy, and he is ridiculing the idea of using the Bible as any kind of guide to public policy. So you're asking yourself, okay, if you're not using the Bible as a guide, what is your guide? Tell me, what are you going to do? How are you going to decide what is right and wrong? Are you a God to yourself? My pastor very wisely pointed out recently in one of our elders' meetings, he says, gentlemen, for the first time we have a postmodern president. Now, those of you that know worldview know what postmodern is all about. Postmodern is basically there is no anchor. There is no foundation. Everybody's just floating around doing what they want to do. It's the height of humanism. Well, some implications of this are these. Social issues. Social issues are not going to be decided based on a biblical worldview. They're going to be decided based on personal preferences, personal interest groups, pressure from these interest groups, probably money. Money will be a big part of this. Entitlements. What I understand about democracies is what happens is democracies the people began to realize they can vote themselves entitlements. And so they elect officials to vote themselves these entitlements, and that keeps going. So as they go, they begin to incur debt to fund these entitlements. And so debt grows and grows and grows and grows. And finally, you get to the point you can't service the debt anymore. You have a financial crisis. You have a government collapse. And the next step is a benevolent dictator. Now, sure looks like to me we're on that road. And at this point, I don't see any stopping it barring an incredible repentance in this country. It would take incredible repentance and sacrifice that I don't see that the American people are willing to do. And then you have the national debt. It's over 10 trillion. Well, just some other things that are signs of the time. Energy costs, going up to 150 seven months ago and now down to 40, this yo-yo. Some of you may be involved in the grain business. If you are, you probably know that ethanol got real hot back last year. Well, guess what? Ethanol is now in the ditch. In fact, a lot of companies that invested in ethanol are now bankrupt. Bankruptcies are up 31%. Foreclosures are up 81%. The stock market is down 50%. And guess what happened to Saab? Saab, you know, the car maker? They filed bankruptcy. Okay? Now here's some other signs of the time. The unemployment rate. Now let's look at first in December of 2007. Unemployment rate was about a little over 4%. Fed funds rate was a little over 4%. Economic growth was around 2%, which are not bad numbers, according to our fiat-based economists. Then we have December 2008. Look at the numbers. Unemployment is nearly doubled. In fact, there's some people that claim it has. Fed funds rate has dropped like a rock, and the reason it's dropped is trying to stimulate things to make it easier for us to borrow money. And, of course, where's our economic growth gone? It's now negative. So that's what's happened in the last year. Signs of the time. All right, how about this? This is the S&P 500 earnings per share trailing 12 months. Okay, this is looking back in time. Okay, you look at 2008 Q3, you're up around over $45. 2008 Q4, you're at over $25. Now, at first quarter 2009, about 20. And second quarter of 2009, they are projecting barely over 15. 
So these are the earnings of the companies, of the best companies in the publicly held arena coming down like a rock. Now, here's a good one here. This is the national debt. Now, I went back to 1988. You know, I could have gone back further, but I just went back to 1988 and just kind of looked at it in three-year increments to try to get a sense. Now, President Obama has gone on record as saying that you can expect trillion-dollar deficits for the foreseeable future. Every year, trillion-dollar deficits. Now, he did not clarify if that included the bailout. I have a sense that that did not include the bailout, which we're now in version two of the bailout, which is another trillion dollars in debt. So this graph could be conservative. Please understand this. So this is what I came up with. And here's where we are today. A little over $10 trillion and counting rapidly. Does that startle anybody? Huh? It ought to get your attention because guess what? We get to pay it back. If we don't get to pay it back, our children and grandchildren get to pay it back. Aren't we giving them a wonderful legacy? Yeah, we're giving them a pile of debt. Welcome to the United States. Welcome to life. You walked into debt. So what do we need for these turbulent times? What's the solution here? I mean, does everybody agree with these are turbulent times? This data is really startling. It should be scaring to all of us. What do we need? What's the solution? Okay, if you're the federal government, what's your solution? Money. Hey, that's the solution. Yeah, that's it. We'll just throw money at it. You know, we'll just borrow money publicly and go give it away to the private sector, kind of bail them out. We'll just transfer the debt load over to the public domain. That's all we do. You see, that's how we think as worldly people. If God is in control and has no lack of resources, money is not the problem. Money is not the problem. Isaiah 46, we'll show that verse to you in a few minutes. But that verse clearly says, that text says, that God will do his purpose. He will carry out his will. And he's into the details, and you'll see that in a few minutes. Genesis 1, how did God create this universe and everything in it? All the gold and the silver, all the rules, all this beautiful scenery, you know, incredible gifts that we have, all the resources. How, how did he do that? Spoke it. Has God run out of words? If he's not run out of words, do you think he can speak whatever he needs into existence? Yeah, this is not a problem. We keep thinking that money's the problem. As if God has, you know, lost track of what's going on in his universe. Like he doesn't know or he doesn't care. But he knows exactly what's going on. Money can be nothing more than a symptom of the problem. Money is never a root issue. I wish I had time to talk about some of the stories that I've experienced on that. But over and over again, I see people throwing money at situations without understanding what the real root issue is. Let me just give you one quick story. There is a gentleman I know who attends a church, and I'm not going to tell you any details here, so don't try to guess. This is a gentleman that's been through some of my training that I've done. I have some training I do on personal destiny. He went through that training, and I spent some time with him personally, and we uncovered that he has some incredible gifts with his hands. I mean, he's the kind of guy that he could go and take a car, and without any kind of manuals, he could change the engine. Now, how many of you can do that? Anybody here can do that? Without any manuals... He could change the engine in the car. And I'm looking at him and I said, are you kidding me? You could do that with no manuals? Oh, yeah, yeah. He never hires any repairs in his home. He does everything himself. And he doesn't replace, like the dishwasher goes out, he doesn't replace the dishwasher. He finds the bad part and replaces the part. Now, you know, today, repair people don't do that today. Have you noticed that? Your dishwasher goes out, they come over and look at it. What do they say? Yeah, you need a new dishwasher. Well, that's the way, that he is going beyond the repair people. I mean, he's that good. I'm saying, my goodness, you know, why aren't you using your hands? He said, well, I can't make enough money. Mm-hmm. You hear that? Yeah. I said, do you realize who gave you those gifts? Those gifts in your hands? Do you think that might be a guide as to what your creator wants you to do? And he's sitting there processing and said, well, I still can't make enough money. Now, let's look at what his church is doing, Okay. His church looks at him and saying, man, you've been out of work a long time. You know, you need some help. We'll give you some benevolence. So they start giving him benevolence. Every month they send him a check. What have they done? They have enabled him to continue his rebellion against his gifting and against the purposes of God in his life. Ah, but it goes even better. See, it gets better. Yes, it does get better. <laughs> you know what's coming next. You know, you finally get to the point in the benevolence, we say, well, we can't keep giving him benevolence month after month. Ah, we'll hire him. 
So the church hires him. He's now a church staff. Hey, do you see the disconnect here? This is the way we're thinking in the Christian world. We're not looking at what God is doing. So anyway, I just want to give you that little quick little story. Money is not the problem, guys. Money, if anything, more often than not, gets in the way of discerning what God wants to do. Okay, so how does one understand and respond to these turbulent financial times? The question is, what is the root issue? Dennis talked about laying the axe at the root. I guess everybody here would agree that the solution to a problem is always to get to the root. Now, those of you that are in the medical profession, you know that very well. You have got to get to the root or you do not solve the problem. You can give somebody an aspirin, the headache goes away, but the problem is still there. You have got to find what caused the headache if you want to really solve the problem. So, what is the root issue here? Why are we having these turbulent financial times? Why is money becoming such a big issue? Anybody want to guess at that? Huh? No volunteers? Okay. Let me suggest it's sin. It all boils down to sin. Now you say, oh, that's so simplistic. No, it isn't simplistic. We have a world that's in rebellion against God. And that rebellion has incredible consequences. And one of the consequences is going to be the fact that we're going to have economic issues. That's the reality. We're in rebellion against Christ, and that is sin. Now, I just want to read you this text in Ezekiel. Now, I know it's out of the Old Testament, and some of you rebel against the Old Testament. And and we're going to pray for you. But I want you to know that the Old Testament is part of the Bible. And I want you to know this. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. Did you think about that? Jesus' Bible. I'm going to read out of Jesus' Bible to find out something about how God works. Can we do that? Is that okay? All right, so this is Ezekiel 33. Then they, that is Israel, will know that I am the Lord. You know, that's what God's after. He wants you to know that he is in charge. When I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. Do you recognize that there is a connection between sin and economic calamity? Do you see that? Can we be any more clear than this? I don't know how to say it any clearer than this. Now notice what he says this. My people come to you, that is Ezekiel, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words. Now I want you to think about the rest of this text in light of your own experience in your local congregations. Just think about this. But they do not put them to practice. Hear that? With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them... He's talking to about Ezekiel. You are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Yeah. I mean, talk about a convicting text. This, to me, this speaks of today. Even though it was written hundreds of years ago, it describes our situation so well. We are an economic calamity because of our sin, and we're totally disregarding the Word of God. We're hearing it preached, and we're just blowing it off. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's just little love songs, but it's not going to bring change or transformation to my life. Well, do you think this is the problem we're in today? We get closer to the root here? Hey, this may be what really is going on. Is this God is allowing the full brunt of our rebellion to be revealed if we've got eyes to see it. Of course, our federal government doesn't see this yet. How many times, or have any of you heard your government officials call for repentance? To turn to the Lord? No, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is try to manage sin and throw money at it. Okay, what we need for turbulent times. What do you think we need for turbulent times? Hmm? Very good. We need wisdom and knowledge. She must have read the notes. Very good. So, would you agree? Whatever problem you have, and everybody in this room has got some problem, write down your problem. Just take your pen and write down your biggest problem right now in the syllabus. Just write it down. What is it? Okay? Your biggest problem. Doesn't matter what it is. Just write down your biggest problem. Okay, has everybody got it? Got your biggest problem? Okay, now what do you need to solve that biggest problem? Don't you need wisdom? You need wisdom and knowledge to solve whatever that problem is. Well, how am I going to get that? Where does that come from? Well, may I suggest to you that we have a repository of wisdom and knowledge. It is called Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
This is the repository of what we need. Our federal government, if they want to really solve the problems in this country, they would be on their knees repenting, looking to the Word of God, seeking the Lord for wisdom to know what to do. I haven't seen that happen. Have you all? I don't see it happen in companies. Oh, worse. I don't see it happening in churches. Oh, that's challenging. Well, we don't even, in our local churches, don't even start looking to the Lord. Say, Lord, we need your wisdom and your understanding to how to deal with our people. We just throw money at it, just like the example I gave you earlier. Just throwing money at that situation with no understanding as to what the root issue, the fact that God was trying to take that man to the, to his, to the, to the plan and purpose that God had for that person, and the church is impairing that. Did you hear that? The church was impairing that. And I just, just, ah, trying to get the leaders to understand that was like pulling teeth. Do you not understand what God has put in this man? They could not see it. That's blindness. That's the blindness that's going on today. Because we do not understand how God works. We've got to start building our lives on Christ. Now this is a little image here of a building. And you see the piers going down and there's rock on, underneath there. Let me suggest... If you lived in Texas, and I'm sorry that you don't, because it's a great place to live. But if you lived in Texas, knowing what we know about foundations and the soil conditions in Texas, you would never build a building without piers. Because Texas has very elastic clay. It, it, it expands and contracts with moisture and moves a lot. There was a theory of construction about 25, 30 years ago called the floating slab. And what they did is they just put the slab on the grade and just let it float with the soil. It didn't work. Did not work well. So those houses and buildings that were built that way ultimately had to go back in and put piers in. I built a new house about seven or eight years ago, and my dad told me, he said, son, there's two things you got to do. I said, yes, sir, I'm listening. I learned to listen to my dad. He says, you build a good foundation, and you put on a good roof. Okay? Everything in between, whatever you want to do. So okay, I got it. So I've got a class four roof. You know what a class four roof is? It's a hail-resistant roof. Really good roof. And I have a slab on piers. In fact, people come through my house that are knowledgeable construction. You can walk through my house and there is no movement in that house. None. There's no cracks or joints or anything. Because we have a slab on piers, piers on rock. Now that's the way you build. And may I suggest the rock is Christ. The piers are disciples to whatever organization that you've got. If you don't have disciples in your organization, you have no way to build on the rock. That's a tip. For those of you that run organizations, I don't care what it is, you need disciples, true disciples in your organization if you want to be connected to the rock. And that's the only way to build. That's the wise way to build. So what we need in turbulent times, we need Christ who is a repository of wisdom and knowledge. So how do we respond to turbulent times? Faith, not fear. Faith, not fear. If you look on the cover of your syllabus there, there's a little compass there. Just look at the cover. You pay attention to those kind of things, you just kind of ignore them. Okay? There's meaning there. You see, on the left, what, what do you have on the left? You have fear. On the right, you have faith. At least they did it correctly. They could have done it the other way. Had faith on the left and fear on the right, but they didn't. Okay? That's good. That's good. Even though the left-right game's over, they're still acknowledging some credibility to that game. Okay. So... But you see, they're mutually exclusive. You're either in fear or you're in faith. You can't do both. You can't straddle. I'm sorry, in God's universe, he's made these mutually exclusive things. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. How many of you here are troubled this morning? How many of you here are honest? That's what I thought. Nobody's being honest. Okay? The reality is you're all troubled. The market reached the lowest point that it's been since 2002. Does that trouble anybody? Huh? Yeah, as you're watching your retirements, your IRAs, your 401ks, all those things go down, down, down. Hey, there's something. Hey, what's going on here? Where's this going? After all, we have an entitlement to be retired, don't we? Mm-hmm. All right. Isn't that why we're working, to be retired? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the kingdom way of working. I you know, can't wait to retire so I can then do something significant, right? right? Well, that's the way we think. Hopefully you understand I'm being sarcastic. Hopefully you understand I do not believe that is biblical. I think in the kingdom, the way it works is if you're faithful, then what happens? You get promoted. If you're faithful in there, what happens? 
you get promoted again. You never stop getting promoted until the Lord says, okay, your time's done. Now you're going to come be with me. But all the time, every day is about me being faithful to what I've been assigned to do. That's all I'm charged to do every day. I don't see any place in there where I get to go and stop and go do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Isn't that what we think retirement is? I don't see that. Does anybody see that? I don't see it. In fact, what happens, the more I feel that I'm lining up with God, the more energy I have, the more I'm excited about each day and what God's called me to do each day. The thought of retirement is not very attractive to me. I mean, hey, I enjoy what I'm doing. Why would I stop? Somebody asked Lee Trevino one time. He says, you know who Lee Trevino is? He's a golfer from Texas. <laughs> I want to be sure you knew that. But Lee Trevino actually worked at a driving range where I took golf lessons when I was a teenager. So I actually knew him when he was playing. He was, hustling, he was a hustler when he was hustling golf back in Dallas back in the, the 60s. But anyway, Lee Trevino, he's out playing golf one day. He runs across this guy, and he's in his 60s. And the guy says, hey, Lee, when are you going to retire? He says, want to play golf every day? <laughs> well, hey, I mean, he's doing what he loves. Isn't that a gift to do what you love, what just gives you energy and brings you life? Well, that's the beautiful thing about the kingdom is you get to do what you love because God gives something in you, a passion for something he wants you to do. And when you find it and you do it, it brings you life. It brings you life. The people that I see lining up with the purposes of God have no thought about retirement. That's never in their mind. They are so energized by what they do, they can't wait to get up each day. Okay, so don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but I just want to remind you of Paul and Silas, how they were thrown into prison. You remember how they were accused wrongly. They were mistreated, though they were Roman citizens. They were stripped. They were beaten. They were probably starved. They're naked. They're in this prison. And at midnight, they're standing down there saying how mistreated they are and how God's forgotten them, right? That's what we would be doing. Okay. Look at all I'm doing for you, God, and look what you did to me. That's how we respond. They're down there praying and singing, and it is so powerful that the prisoners are listening. You see, that's how we're supposed to walk through difficulties. In Philippians, it says it's been granted to us two things. The end of Philippians, two things. Number one is to believe on Christ. It's the gift. Is that not a gift? You have another gift. You know what that other gift is? It's to suffer for him. That's a gift. See, we don't understand that because we keep thinking it's all about our comfort and our enjoyment and our pleasure. All right, so let's talk about the solution to turbulent times. What is the solution? May I suggest the solution is Christ? And let me suggest that Christ, faith in Christ, is there are a number of things we can do to begin to walk in faith with Christ. You ever thought about what does it mean to really walk in faith, to really trust God? Well, I just want to give you some clues I call them seven keys to trusting Christ. And this will be the rest of our session is going through these seven keys. And I know this homiletically, it might not be exactly what the professors would teach you because they teach you three. But I'm going to give you seven, which is a divine number. Can you handle seven? Yes. All right, you okay with seven? Okay. As long as there's no homiletical professors in here, they're going to give me an F for this. Okay. So first one is blank is not surprised. All right. Secondly is blank is in reality. Third one is the real risk is blank. Fourth one is the only blank is in blank. Fifth one is as unto the Lord. The sixth one is keep your blank open. And the seventh one is ask. Okay, I'm finished now. You want to know the blanks, right? Uh, hopefully you want to know the blanks. The point of the blanks is to hopefully entice you into wanting to know the blanks. Okay, so let's talk about it. Number one, God is not surprised. God is never surprised. I'm always amazed at how people think God's not aware of something. You know, he doesn't realize what's going on down here. Or he's surprised. Something happened that didn't, he didn't know it was going to happen. It's going to mess up his plan. Well, look at this text here, Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, wait a minute. I thought flipping the coin or casting lots was just a random thing. You see, to us, they look random. But to the creator of the universe... There's no random, because he has sovereignly controlled and called everything into existence and controls everything. Now, here's that text in Isaiah, I promised you. Let's just take a quick look at that. 
Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Is there any question here? Huh? Anybody got a question? God's going to do what God wants to do. He is in control. Now, notice how particular and detailed God is. And this is a problem for most of us. Most of us think that God has a will for Earl Pitts, because Earl Pitts is important. He goes around the world doing important stuff. But God doesn't really have a will about me. I'm just a nothing. I'm just a this or a that. But that's not what God says here. Look what he says. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. He didn't say flock. He didn't say gaggle. He said a bird. One bird. One little bird to accomplish his purpose. From a far off land, a man. Not an army. Not a bunch of men. Not a task force. Not a think tank. A man. God is very particular, personal, and individual to fulfill his purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. There's nothing that will thwart the plan of God. God is never surprised. Everything is always a setup. Do you realize that? Have you ever thought that what is going on in your life, no matter what it is, is exactly what you need right now? Have you ever thought that way? You start thinking, okay, whatever the perplexity or the difficulties or the challenges or the problems or the pain or whatever it is that's going on is exactly what I need right now. I need this. And why do I need this? Well, let's look at the next one. God is in reality. We all have circumstances. We all could sit down and give our woes and our difficulties and our challenges, our fears, our concerns. We could all do that. Now, what are those circumstances all about? Why did God give us those things? Well, what God is all about is change. He's into transforming people. He's into taking circumstances and running those circumstances through a biblical grid to result in maturity. Isn't that what God's after? Maturing us in Christ, making us like Christ. Circumstances are tools. They're conduits for God to filter us and change us and make us like Christ. Now, just take a quick look at Job chapter 42. This is a great text. And I can't tell you how many times I've tried to minister to people using the book of Job, and they absolutely go ballistic. (laughs) You know, I never know how people are going to react to Job, but I mean, I'm tired of looking at Job, I'm tired of hearing about Job, da-da-da-da-da. Well, but I'm sorry, Job is in Jesus' Bible, and since I want to be true to Jesus' Bible, I'm going to look at what Job has to say. Now, I want you to notice, this is the end of the book, Job 42, and this is after they've been through all the pity parties and... And all that stuff that went on in the book. And God has spoken to him and set him straight. Now Job has an epiphany moment. He has revelation. He says this. He's talking to the Lord. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. He figured that out. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? That's what we do. When we start fussing about God, fussing about our circumstances, we're obscuring God's counsel without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. This is Job's way of repenting of his pity party. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. You see what happened? As Job had a revelation of God, he could hear him. God took away everything. His family... His money, his health, took it all away. How would you feel? Feel like you've been abandoned? You'd probably go into a pity party just like Job? Well, God, that was a setup. All that was a setup because God wanted to mature Job. And so now, at the end of the book, he says, I had heard of you now through those circumstances and your transforming power and taking me to a level of maturity, and now I see you. I have a deeper level of revelation and understanding about who you are Because God is always in reality. The real risk here is not the lack of money. It's the worship of money. That is the real risk. And again, using Jesus' Bible, I find that God doesn't particularly care for us to worship anything else but him. In fact, it says he's jealous. He's jealous. 
If he's jealous, does that not suggest that he might do something if we start worshiping money? Have you ever sat down and tried to just discern in what ways am I worshiping money? You ever, ever thought what that might look like? Well, I'm going to give you a whole list of characteristics. And you can see, you know, just maybe you have some of those characteristics. And if you're like, personally, I'm going to give you characteristics that describe me. As I have dealt with the whole worship of money in my life. You know, I've become increasingly convinced that most professing Christians worship money. They really don't worship God. And part of maturity is moving away from that idolatry into the worship of the true God. And that's the challenge for all of us. Guess what? God's universe, there's a rule. The rule is you cannot have both. You cannot worship God and money. You have to make a choice. That's a challenge. Now, all of us intellectually know what to choose. But here, it becomes different. That's where the rub is, right here. Okay, number four. The only security is in God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. That means that God owns everything. If he created it all, is it not fair to say he owns everything? We kind of think of ourselves as we own our houses and, you know, we own certain assets and maybe we own stocks and bonds and maybe we own a small business or whatever. Guess what? You don't own it. In fact, here's one way you know you don't own it. What happens to those assets when you die? My dad had a lot of assets. He built up a lot of assets in his life. He died last April. And when we buried him, those assets didn't get buried with him. Okay? A lot of those assets I'm winding up having to deal with now. And if I were to die today, guess what? My heirs would have to deal with those assets. You see, these assets don't belong to me. They didn't belong to my dad. They belong to God. My dad was the steward of them. And now I'm the temporary steward of them until the next steward is identified. That's the game we're in. And so we've got to begin to get it that we're all just typically stewards. One of the things we're going to talk about in the workshop is the difference between being a consumer and a steward. Stewardship. Well, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. We're going to talk about consumers. We have bought into a lie. Every day, if you watch CNBC or you watch Fox News or you watch Bloomberg, and what are these pundits these economists and investment pundits, what do they call you and me? They call us consumers. And guess what? If people label you something, what do you try to do? Yeah, you tend to want to live up to the label, don't you? And that's what we do. I've noticed my wife has heard that label. I said, you know, we've got to get rid of this label. You know, the real label is you're a steward. And getting that is hard. But... The earth is the Lord's. Everything is his. We are simply here to steward it. And guess what? He doesn't lack for resources. The silver is his. The gold is his. He can make more of it. It's not any problem. We act like money is a huge problem. Money is never a problem. Money is a symptom. If I've learned anything in working with people over the years, money is almost never the solution. There are times. There are times when it can be helpful. A quick story. A client called me. This client's in the commodities business. He buys and sells a lot of grain and things like that. And he says, look, I've heard about this problem in Africa. And these people here are really starving. Their crops failed and all that. So I'm going to send them a boatload of grain. Now, this is a guy that's, you know, pretty well off. So he could do something like this. And I said, okay, why are you doing this? He said, well, because they're hungry. I said, and are you going to send anything else with them? He said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, is that all you're going to do is just send them food? Just going to send food down there is all? He said, well, yeah, I'm just trying to feed them. So if you do that, then what do you think you're going to have to do next year? He said, oh, I may have to do it again next year. I said, very likely. And what about the year after? Well, um, maybe I'll have to do it again. I said, do you really want to solve the problem? He said, what's the problem? I thought food was the problem. I said, no, food's not the problem. It's a symptom. What's the real problem? Then he got it. He said, they don't know the Lord. I said, yes. They don't know how to live well in God's universe. When you don't know the Lord, you don't know how to live well in His universe. If you want to help them solve the problem, send them the Lord. And the food may be a tool to help open the door. Don't send the food down there without the Lord. Send the Lord down there some way. You've got to get the Lord to them and offer them the Lord. That's what you've got to do. And so it was just like, ah. Oh, Transforming. I said, yes, because we've got to learn to think biblically. The real root problem in our world today is people are rejecting Christ. 
That's the problem. And all these symptoms, these wars and these famine and poverty, all these are symptoms of the rebellion that's going on. We know the solution. We know Christ. We need to give him Christ. And we give him Christ by going down there and helping him out, you know, with their momentary issues. I'm going to feed you and I'm going to tell you why you're hungry and tell you how you can stop being hungry. That's what I want to do. So we've got to begin to recognize that God is the rock, the anchor. He's the solution. He's the source of life. He is the provider. He's Jehovah Jireh. Okay, the work essence of the Lord. Now, this is something I find most people don't understand. I call this the Boy Scout verse. Okay, the Boy Scout verse. Now, look what it says. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, most of us will hear that term word or deed. If you've been in a Boy Scout, you immediately think about, you know, doing a good deed. Now, how many of you have been in Boy Scouts? Okay, so what's a good deed in the Boy Scouts? Huh? Yeah, help a little lady across the street. That would be a good deed. Yeah, uh, that's a good deed. That's how we think. Okay, that's not what the text says. Would you believe that's not what the text says? Okay, the word that's used there, the Greek word, is the word ergon. Now, ergon is a word that describes all kinds of work. Any kind of work. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's work, it's ergon. So what he's saying is, whatever you do in word, whatever you say, and however you work, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's saying there. This is a verse that's calling us to a higher level of work. And this is a picture of my Christmas gift to my clients this year. I gave them a stamp. And on the stamp, you see underneath it says, This work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. I say, you want to put the stamp on your desk. I'm going to give you a pad, too. Give you an ink pad. And you need to be able to either literally or figuratively take that stamp, put it on the ink pad, and everything you do, put the stamp on it. Everything. Every phone call, every conversation, every work product, every thought, everything you do, I'm putting a stamp on it. Because that's how you're called to work. Now, see, that's a totally missing ingredient in Christianity today. Because we think work at most... At most, at best, it's a place to make money and evangelize. That's it. That's all, all it's about. No, that's not what the text says. Well, it, goes, it gets worse. You know, Paul gets worse on these things. Look what he says next, just a few verses later. He says, work as if God is your boss. Well, wait a minute. Now we're really getting serious. Now I've got to give an account to this, to what I'm doing. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Now that's really hard for us because we think work is kind of second class. Work is only a necessary evil because the real important stuff is happening back in the church. That's how we think. That's the common perspective. We have a business council at our church and one of the things we do is what we call a sounding board. It's a basically a personal presbytery is what it is for anybody in the church that would like a biblical worldview of the workplace. Now, when they sign up for this, they usually don't have a clue what they're walking into. Okay? They usually are totally ignorant. So here they come in. Here's about three or four guys, and we're ready. We're ready for bear. Okay? Because we know what we're going to hear from them. It's almost always the same. Well, you know, I've got this business. I'm doing such and such. And I'm really working hard to, to be able to sell it so I can go on a mission field. Really? Is that what you're called to do? Well, yeah, I really feel called. To, why do you feel called to do that? Well, I, I just know that I want to make my life count for something. So your life doesn't count for anything right now based on what you're doing? You know, and so we drive them into the corner, you know. And invariably, that's what we run into. Now, what's really sad about this is most of the time, that's reality. And most of the people that we see are leaders in our churches. So if the leaders are not getting it, the sheep are surely not going to get it. So that's the dualism we're fighting. I'm grateful that our church has got this effort going on where we're trying to attack this. And we have seen good fruit. Believe it or not, there are a few people that have totally rejected it. But most of the people, it's a new revelation. They have never, never seen work biblically before. And we show them texts like this to point out how God does value work. And we point out Genesis 1 where God created the universe. And what did he say after each day? He said it's good. At the end of the six days, he said what? He called it very good. That physical universe that we disdain, that we don't value, God values. And so when we begin to think and act like God and value things that God values, 
then life begins to change for us and we begin to line up with God. And guess what? As we line up with God, what does Matthew 6.33 say? As I line up with God, what happens? Seek first the kingdom and do it according to his rules. Provision. Provision. God provides for his will. When you line up to do his will, there is provision. See, we fret about provision. God says, I don't want you to fret about provision. Fret about discerning and doing my will. That's what you fret about. Okay. Remember the definition of success. Who knows the definition of, biblical definition of success? Who has the most money, right? Yeah. Is Bill Gates a success? He's a success? How do you know he's a success? Is Warren Buffett a success? Well, the numbers look like he's a success, but I want to remind you, the most successful man in the world died broke. Does that mess up your paradigms? Huh? Look what he said. John 17, verse 4. I have brought you glory. Speaking to the Father. This is his high priestly prayer. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, guess what word is used there for work? Aragon. You see it? Jesus had a work assignment just like you and I have a work assignment. And success for Jesus was doing his work assignment. You see, we have bought into a paradigm of Christianity that's so unbiblical that it's just hard to believe how far off we are. And so we've got to really be radical about submitting our paradigm to the Word of God and saying, hey, it's all on the table. Anything that's not of you, I want to flush it. I want to flush it. Number six, keep your options open. Now, this is Ecclesiastes 11, verses 5 and 6. Just want to point out a couple things to you. Sow your seed in the morning, and in evening let not your hands be idle, for you don't know what will succeed. And, of course, the reason for this is because you don't understand God. Nobody understands God that well. And so part of the incomprehensibility of God is we have to be willing to be open to whatever he wants to do, and it's probably going to surprise us. Uh, my experience has been I almost never figure out what he's going to do. Uh, never. Now, it doesn't stop me from trying to be strategic. We all are charged to be strategic. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, it doesn't say we don't plan. It says we do plan, but we allow for the Lord to make those course corrections. We've got to be willing to be open to God bringing change and bringing things that are going to surprise us into our lives. So that means we've got to do some things. Number one is we don't burn bridges. You know, it's real easy. Okay, I'm out of here. I'm through with you guys. I am done. You know, let me tell you what I think of you, what I think of you, what I think of you, and I'm out of here. Okay, and that's what we do. Not realizing God may have another assignment for us right back there with those same people. And now we've got to, someone else, got to reconstruct those burned bridges. Okay, that's the foolishness we get into. Here's another foolishness I see, I see that's really prevalent, and that is a presumption. The presumption that you hear God clearly by yourself. Here's the reality. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we know, see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as I am known. You see, I can only see a little bit. And remember, I can't see myself, and you can't see yourself. So for me to be able to discern the will of God, I need to be in community, hearing wise counsel, seeking the will of God, submitting everything I'm seeing to my wise counsel, trying to discern what God's saying. How many of you would just like God to just whisper in your ear what he wants you to do? Yeah, We all want that. Yeah, that's very common. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the way he works. He seems to work by talking to me largely through this lady next to me early in the morning telling me things that I don't want to hear. <laughs> she has discovered that my week time, my time of least resistance, is about 6 a.m. Because I am not a morning person. And she is a morning person. She's up at 4.30, ready to go. She will have already done her workout routine, and she's had her quiet time and her breakfast. She's changed clothes three times or five times or whatever. Okay? And she's ready to go. And I am sitting there sawing logs, and now she's going to come tell me everything God told her that morning to tell me. And so I get a load dropped on me at 6 a.m. It's amazing. When I come out of the fog, I say, I think the Lord spoke to me. <laughs> It's amazing. So I've got to be open to that reality. I've got to hurry here. Okay, this is the divine problem-solving methodology. I don't care what problem you have in life, God has given you a way to solve it. It's real simple. You ask, 
You seek and you knock. And asking is prayer. Get on your knees and start praying. Asking the Lord. The next thing you do is you start doing your research. That's the seeking. You look around. You explore options. You see what the opportunities are. And when you see a door, you knock on the door. Just a little clue in applying this principle. My experience is the first door is almost always a head fake. And the way you know that is the first door is so close to what you're looking for. It's just there's something that's not quite right. You've got to do a little compromise or something. It doesn't quite fit. You're so desperate to solve this problem, you want to jump at it. And you just jumped into more problems. So we've got to learn to be very astute at applying this principle. All right, so I've got to wrap this up. Just a summary. God is not surprised. These are seven keys to walking in faith through these turbulent times. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. If you walked it with these keys... You would walk in faith at a level you're probably not walking at right now. Now, there may be a few exceptions. Maybe Earl and Dennis are walking at that level, or maybe uh, Linda is, and maybe Tom and some of the other speakers. But I'm not walking there. I know the theory better than my reality. I'm trying to get there. So we've got to learn to walk at this reality. So God is not surprised. God is in reality. He is in reality. We sometimes don't want to believe that, but he's there. The real risk is idolatry. Fear. The worship of money, the fear of man, those kinds of things. The only real security is in God. Work as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, work as unto the Lord. You know, when you stop and think about it, who are the people that get laid off from companies? Huh? The poor workers, aren't they? If you're a manager and you're going to lay people off, you make a list and you take the least productive people and those are the ones you tend to lay off. What happens if we were the best workers? Well, probably wouldn't get laid off, would we? It'd be a different scenario. Okay, keep your options open. Remember, nobody hears and discerns God's will well. Don't presume that when he moves you, he transitions you, that you can just burn those bridges. Don't presume that you hear clearly by yourself. And ask, seek, knock is the divine problem-solving methodology. The master key to all of this is, of course, Christ and the wisdom we get from Christ. We need, at this time, to be the men of Issachar. We need the discernment that they had. Notice when David was getting ready to transition and take over the kingdom of Saul. Did you know that David had to fight for that kingdom? He fought a long time for that kingdom. He was given the command, you're going to be ruler, and then he had to fight for years to get that kingdom. And along the way, the men of Issachar had said of them, they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We're in a fight now. We're in a fight for the kingdom of God now. Our job is to understand the times and to know what Israel's to do. And let me give you one last thought, what I started with. If you don't intentionally study God's ways of business, you will default to the world's ways. That is a reality for all of us. That means if you have not been through the school, you should be in the school. Your friends need to be in the school. Everybody in your church needs to be in the school because this is the best training I have seen on teaching people God's ways of business. I know of no better training, nothing even close than this school. So I encourage you, jump in, get your feet wet, allow God to transform you and transform the way you do business. May the Lord bless you.